EcoHealth, your internet radio. It is the road trip show here with Diedrich. Oh, I forgot to put the right post up because I got the day mixed up. <laughs> but yeah, I quickly corrected it. So how's things going in the travel industry? What's happening with the bans and everything? Well, Canada has reversed their travel ban, which is a little bit of good news. And this morning or last night, I saw a article come through on one of the major news networks that America is also looking at reversing their travel ban. So good news all around on that side. Yeah, that um, is good news. You know, that was a, um, a website called Business Insider, and they, they're generally a very reputable site. And apparently the Center for Disease Control in the U.S. is admitting that travel bans don't work. Yeah. So stopping all the trade and the travel and the tourism and the business and stuff actually does nothing to stop the spread of corona. Um, the corona is already there. Yeah. And all you're doing is you're strangling trade and you're, stra- you're, strangling, you're strangling the economy. Yeah. So hopefully that happens the next week or so, and then we can maybe still rescue a little bit of our December, January holiday season. I, I really feel for the guys who had international bookings for the startup and lead yeah. up to Christmas. That just got hammered. But hopefully we can still rescue the last part of our normal tourist season up until sort of March, April next year. Yes, yes. It would be would be nice. Yeah, that would be nice. I think for a lot of people. For an awful lot of people, it would yeah. be nice. So where are we traveling today? Well, I figured we'd do a little bit, something a little bit different. Well, maybe maybe this week and next week. We're going up to the end of the year and stuff, and we've done, we've done a couple of the highways. We haven't quite finished the N2 yet. We've only got into um, uh, PE at this stage. We've still got another couple of thousand kilometers to go on the N2. Yeah, <laughs> so we can maybe continue that when we when we when we kick off again in the in the in the new year. But I actually thought, you know, a lot of people ask me what are the best spots or what are the top sites or what are the nicest places to go and visit. Yeah, and I mean that's a heck of a difficult one to to pin down. And I and I sat there for a while. I mean, we chatted about it already. Like by the time we've done two or three shows, we were looking at this, going, you know, what are the top yes. ten whatevers? <laughs> yeah. And eventually I came with an idea, and he said, I said, okay, let's break it into little categories. And I thought, okay, let, let's, let's do South Africa's top five natural wonders. Okay, that's an interesting one. It's, a, it's just a slightly different take on, a, on, a, on an actual road trip. Now, the list is, of course, by no means exhaustive, and some people are going to agree with me, and an awful lot of people won't agree with me on this one. Yeah. But I mean, our top our top natural wonder has to be the Kruger National Park. Yes, we've covered that in I think what is it five episodes? I think we did. We took just to go through the Kruger Park, and I could easily put another ten episodes together yeah. just chatting about the Kruger National Park. And it's one of those it's one of those funny things when you talk to an awful lot of locals and you say, "Wow, you know where you travel to?" Oh no, my dream is to go to Egypt or go to Europe or go to yeah. America or go here or go this or go to East Africa. People forget and don't actually realize what we've got here in South Africa. Yes. And I've literally hosted thousands of people over the last 30 years as a as a tourist guide. And the variety and the quality of stuff we've got in South Africa is almost unrivaled. And the variety is such a vital part of any kind of itinerary because you can literally start off in the morning and have people experience literally three, four, five such different things in one day, drop them off at the hotel, and they're trying to work out what was the most spectacular of all the five things that you've done. Yeah, yeah, and that that is South African tourism, and the Kruger Park has to rate above there. And the Americans have got a a good saying: "Bang for your buck." Bang for your buck. Bang for <laughs> your buck. And one of my biggest clients is an American <clears throat> operator, and he's always going on about bang for your buck. He sells his tours as the best bang for your buck you can get. Yeah, and the Kruger Park, as an African wildlife destination, has to be the best value as bang for your buck. Yeah, it is a massive park. It has got one of the highest biodiversity counts of any African park. 
So the variety of birds, animals, trees, you name it, that you can see in Kruger, the variety and stuff far outstrips East Africa. Yes. So East Africa's got that spectacular one million wildebeest jumping across a river filled with crocodiles. I mean, that again is its own spectacular happening. Yeah. We don't have that. The yes. ecology is different. That's a grassland ecology. This is more savanna kind of ecology. So we don't have those herds of a million wildebeest or you know, zeb- zebras migrating and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that's an entirely different experience. But Kruger, for diversity, for value for money, is almost unrivaled anywhere in the world. And, I mean, I've traveled most of southern Africa. I've never been fortunate enough to make it up to East Africa. But as for Southern Africa, I would still go to Kruger in a heartbeat, yeah. way before I choose any other of the national parks. It's not to say we haven't got other beautiful national parks, but for a family experience, for wildlife viewing, for an actual holiday kind of thing, Kruger Park, you actually cannot beat. Yeah. The other one that always gets the people excited is the whale watching well watching along our along our coast we're on the migratory route of the southern right whales and a couple of the other whale species and in season the whale watching again is spectacular it's easily accessible for anyone no special skills i mean you're not diving or you know yeah, doing anything yeah. weird you're getting onto a boat the launches I think we chatted about this one the other the other time about the beach launch. Yes, that you, you did do, say that's a little bit frightening. Which is <laughs> if it's which, your first time, you know, South, South Africans <laughs> South Africans are an adventurous lot. We really are, and yeah. we get these international clients who've done all sorts of stuff and trips and tours and things all over the world, and they are the world travellers. And you put them on this boat, and you say, right, life jacket on. And they look at you, they go, what are we doing? Now we're going to push you out in a tractor into the waves, and we're going to sort of ramp the waves out and they go what <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and you see the white knuckle death grip on the handrails as, as the boat gets launched but the whale watching along our coast again is is mind-blowing go with one of the proper registered operators completely ethical the, the motors get stopped the whales sometimes come right up to the boat yeah and I've, I did one, I think it was in St. Lucia the one time, where the southern right whales were actually breaching. And the boat had stopped. We were just, we were just gently bobbing up and down. Yeah. And this right whale breached. Now, you're talking 60 tons of whale coming out of the ocean. Yeah, yeah. And the splash when he came down actually wet us on the boat. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine <laughs> with 60 tons. Yeah. I mean, that's how close it is. And that is whale watching that you don't get almost yeah. anywhere else on the planet. Okay, so you say you were at St. Lucia. Which other places can you do whale watching? Whale watching is right around the coast. You see, you already see the whales in around Hermanus. You see them in False Bay, okay. all the way along that southern coast. Plettenberg Bay's got, got huge operations. Mossel Bay's got operations that do it yeah. along the wild coast. And then up the up the KZN coast as well. So there's multiple places where you can yeah, go whale yeah. watching. I mean, I've, I was I was one one in Pletten, Plettenberg Bay, where the whales were literally they were mating, floating right next to the boat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, incredible. Just um, that's once in a lifetime, mind blowing yes. kind of stuff. So that has got to be one of the most spectacular things you can do as well. Other other natural stuff, Table Mountain. Oh, yes. Table Mountain. (laughs) National Park, National Monument, Historical Site, everything rolled into one. World Heritage Site, all of it rolled into the one slap bang in the middle of of a huge city. Yeah. And it's the most amazing thing. You you go up Table Mountain and you hit this piece. You know, you hear the noise of the city, the sort of rumble of the city down in the in in the city bowl in front of you, but you're sitting yes. on top of the mountain and it's beautifully quiet on a clear day, you can almost see all the way to Saldana Bay. And it's just one of those it's one of those special places. It's the the more esoteric people consider it to be one of the world power points where all sorts of different you know, ley lines and things come oh, together yes, as well. Yes. Um 
It is a national monument, it's a historical site, it's a world heritage site, it's in the middle of the Feinbos. I've heard one, one, one source actually claims there's more types of plant on Table Mountain than there are in the whole of North America. Oh, That's the diversity yes. of the Feinbos um, in that southwestern Cape. The southwestern Cape, just that little southwestern Cape, is its own botanical kingdom. Yeah, yeah. It's a tiny little place. I mean, it's a couple of hundred kilometers in extent. It's an entire kingdom. And to put that in, into perspective, the whole of North America is a kingdom. Yeah. The whole of Australia is a kingdom, a botanical kingdom. Just yes. Cape Town and like 200 k's around Cape Town is its own kingdom. That's how diverse the biology is on yeah. Table Mountain. There's a couple of lizards and amphibians that are found nowhere else. So Cape Town is like a hub in, or in Table Mountain is like a little hub within within Cape yeah. Town. The, the life revolves around the, around the mountain. When yes. you go on tour, the first thing you do is you look for clouds on the mountain. And if you arrive in Cape Town and there's no clouds, you go straight up onto that cable car. Yeah. And you get your clients up on, ta on Table Mountain. And the cable car itself is an experience. Um, beautiful machinery. Yeah. And I think they hold 85 packs or something per trip. But the interesting part of it is that the floor actually rotates. Yes. So yeah. you, I warn the folks, and I say, listen, guys, if you don't like the heights and you're nervous and stuff, go to the middle where the driver operator guy sits because that stays stable. Yes. But if you don't mind, then get to a window because in the time it takes from the cable car to get from the bottom of the, of the, the, the bottom cable way up to the top, it rotates just over one full rotation so you get this beautiful 360 view as you're going up yeah but it's, it's always funny because you see the people that are not expecting it and they they, they fight for a little <laughs> window seat everybody yeah. fights for the window because you want to get the windows pointless standing in this crowd in the middle of the cable cars everybody wants yes. to get to the window <laughs> but then you see these guys sitting there and they, they found the little open window space and the cable car starts and you always get a bit of a bump and a shake as it sort of leaves the cable way and it sort of swings a little bit as it now gets momentum yeah and then the operator says, right, guys, stand by, please leave the handrails. We're going to rotate the floor. And the floor gets going, and you see the people that are so scared that they refuse to let go. Yeah. And they're holding on the handrail, and slowly their feet move out from underneath them until they stay in his <laughs> and then they have to let go. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but, again, the walk, the walk on top of Table Mountain, you could spend the entire day on top of Table Mountain without any issue. The photography opportunities are amazing. The bird life is on is amazing up there. Yeah, and there's more a restaurant up there's there. There's a as restaurant well. on top there. It's one of it's one of life's treats to sit there with a cold beer and watch the sunset. Yeah. Off the other end of the back or back end in inverted commas a table mountain. Yeah. So that also has to be on one of the on one of the spots. Now my my next one is again a slightly different one because I was lucky enough once to get a group from Spain. Oh, yes. A little group of, I think it was eight, to eight or ten people who'd come out here specifically on a scuba diving tour. And I'm a very keen scuba diver myself. So it certainly wasn't any punishment for me. Yeah. And we arranged a trip to Sodwana Bay. Oh, yes. Now, again, it's one of those things South Africans forget what we've got on our own doorstep. In Sodwana is a very interesting spot because it is it's the southernmost coral reefs along the african continent okay and what makes it different it's coral reefs that are born or hosted or lie or rest on on sand most other coral reefs lie on rock oh, these yeah. coral reefs okay. lie on sand <clears throat> and <clears throat> There's, I think there's something like 1,200 different fish species that have been recorded in Sodwana Bay. Oh, wow. And it is rated one of the top 20 dive spots in the world. So these guys I hosted that time had been through the Red Sea. They'd been to the Maldives. They'd been to you know, all sorts of other spots. They came out yeah. to Sodwana, and they were blown away. And again... It's the beach launch. It's what we call a drift dive. For for South Africans, it's perfectly normal. You bail off the you bail off the boat, yeah, and you you go down in the group and the 
the dive master has got a little rope with a buoy line so that the boat can see where you are. Yeah, yeah. And then he follows you. So if the current takes you, he just follows you with the current. <laughs> yeah. And then eventually after your 30, 40, 50 minutes underwater, you surface and the boat is there with you. Yeah. And this was mind-blowingly scary to these guys. These are experienced divers. These are guys who have <laughs> dived all over the world. Yeah. But they're used to a nice liverboard boat and then used to a nice, you know, big, big type of liverboard or, a, or, or, yeah. or, or whatever. This beach launch in a little, little rubber duck going through the surf and disappearing three, four, five miles offshore. <laughs> this was really scary stuff. And I had one or two guys actually panic. They actually couldn't. They actually couldn't dive on the first and second dives they were so panicked about what we consider completely normal okay <laughs> but again you know when you talk to the dives oh, i want to go to the red sea i want to go to the maldives i want to dive here i want to dive there guys we've got it on our own doorstep yeah. one of the top dive sites in the world is on our doorstep at Sodwana. Okay. and of course you got that entire isamanga lisu park all around Sodwana. Yeah. So there's all sorts of wildlife and nature all built into one right, right there on our doorstep. And then just as another interesting one that I thought I'd throw out. And guys, please, you know, understand there's, 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 a, there's, there's a whole gaggle of stuff that I could carry on about our natural wonders. <laughs> and it's a hard, hard list putting, putting five just at the top of my list. Yeah. But the other one has got to be the Karoo Night Skies. Okay. As a very different one, people immediately think of, I don't know, like the Sardine Run or the Kalahari Flensburg National Park or the Drakensberg or something. Yeah. But the night skies of the Karoo, and it's borne out by the fact that in the little town of Sutherland, you've got the South African Large Telescope. It's called SALT. Oh, yes. It's one, it is the biggest telescope in the Southern Hemisphere. It sits on a mountaintop just out of Sutherland, and it's sitting there about 1,800-odd meters in altitude on, on the mountains there. So, I mean, this, okay, this place gets, yeah. gets beyond cold. The Afrikaners frack goat. There's anakan frack goat in Sutherland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but mm. it's there for a reason, because the skies are so crystal clear. That's why they built it there. It's yeah. an international conglomeration of organizations that came together that that use this operation and just around salt i think are another three or four different telescopes all doing different telescope things yes one is measuring light and one's measuring infrared and one's measuring i don't know what else yeah but the largest telescope in the southern hemisphere is here in south africa for a reason, our skies are so clear. The night skies there, there's no light pollution, there's no water yeah. vapor, there's nothing. The images that you can get out of that telescope are unbelievable. So sitting at night in the Karoo, anywhere in the Karoo, and you're talking from Sutherland right through to Beaufort West, to Grafrenet, to New Bethesda, doesn't matter, in the Karoo, Mikey's Fontaine. Yeah, Mikey's Fontaine. Mikey's Fontaine, I had to throw Mikey's Fontaine in. <laughs> And to sit on a veranda at a lodge or a hotel and just look up into that night sky is its own treat. We lose that in the cities and towns because of the light yeah, pollution and, and the moisture and all the other stuff in the, in the sky. So that I consider to be one of our five natural wonders as well. Yes. And uh, maybe some of the people want to write in and send me an email and say, ah, you forgot this or that. And we can always talk about those other ones. Yeah. But <laughs> I think those five, I think, encapsulate a heck of a lot of what South Africa actually is about and the value and the variety of yes. stuff that we can actually see. <clears throat> then the next one. And again, guys are going to fight me on this. I look at the, the South Africa's, what I consider to be South Africa's top five monuments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was said with a bit of skepticism or sort of, a, oh, my word, what's he going to say now? <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for it. <laughs> and for me, a monument, a monument encapsulates a moment in time or a period in time that has to be remembered. 
Yes. Good or bad is immaterial. Yeah. History <clears throat> is not for us to like or dislike. History is there for us to learn yeah. something. We can't undo history. We can't undo what happened 150 years ago. Yes, it's not, it's not back to the future. It's not, well, exactly. <laughs> so, I've got a, I, I love monuments, and whether it's a monument to some character who murdered 20 million people or to commemorate a guy who discovered some life-saving something or other, to me, those monuments all deserve to be there and to stand and to show you what is there. Yes. And South Africa has got a, a good couple of them. And the most beautiful monuments all, yeah, how do, how do I put it? So they, 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 they're obviously tied to some momentous occasion or momentous event in our history. And the first one that I'm going to say is that at some point in time, you have to visit the Fortrecker Monument in Pretoria. Yes. <clears throat> agree or disagree, immaterial, four trackers, 1830s, 1840s, one of the events in South African history that shaped what yeah. we are even still doing today. today. Yeah. I was there the other day. You I'll were. You were singing, singing your heart out in the amphitheater. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I couldn't really look around and whatnot. <laughs> But if you want to understand South Africa's history and how it happened, how it got formed, how the politics developed, you have to go into that Fortrecker monument and look at the story of what those Fortreckers did. Yes. Obviously, the, the Fortrecker monument is quite a romanticized version of it, but you leave the Cape, you pack all your stuff in an ox wagon, you're trying to get away from the British, you just want your independence, and off you go into into unknown territory, basically. Not completely unknown. I mean, they obviously had reports from hunters and explorers, and they yeah. send a couple of reconnaissance parties out. But you're now living in an ox <coughs> wagon, wild animals, hostile tribes, and all sorts of stuff. And this, that story is an unbelievable story of endurance and, like they say in Afrikaans, fuss bait. Yeah, yes. So the monument, the Fortrecker monument itself, and the imagery built in there, you know, the... The light of the light of civilization coming in, the ripples on the floor, the that 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 sixteenth of December when that light shines down onto that sarcophagus, yeah, is just mind blowing. And you've got to immerse yourself into that Fortrecker monument. And funny enough, the Fortrecker monument also features on my list on my next list of museums because you've got the monument and you've got the museum there. Oh, so yes. I, I separate the two. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then we've got for me the Frower Monument in Bloemfontein. Ah yes. And that's again next to one of these iconic museums. But the Frower Monument is that one where you actually go all quiet and somber and you get goosebumps. trying to put yourself in the place of these women and children in the concentration camps yeah. during the Second Anglo-Boer War. And it's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful monument. It really is a spectacular monument. And you walk up that long alleyway with all the names of the people, the little headstones commemorating all the different concentration camps with how many people died in the concentration camps. And that kind of makes you get it why that is such an iconic happening in the psyche of South Africans. Yes. It certainly wasn't on the scale of the Holocaust in World War II. Yeah. But it was our own mini Holocaust. Yes. Different visions, different ideologies, different causes of it entirely. The two are in no way stretch of anyone's imagination on a kind of parallel. Yeah. You know, the the actual Holocaust against the Jews was a planned extermination. The yes. concentration camps in South Africa were not that. It was a depopulating the countryside to stop the farms resupplying the guerrilla forces. Yes. The ideologies were not the same, but the outcome was. 
and tens of thousands of people died in these mm. concentration camps. And again, you have to see that because it lets you understand the significance of it yeah. in our history. <clears throat> then I put down the Blood River Monument. Ah, yes. We've just We've... gone through Day of Reconciliation, 16th yeah. of December, which is the anniversary of the Battle of Blood River or the Battle of Norme. And that is, again, one of the pivotal moments in South African history. And it's one of these funny ones that a couple of years ago we put a post up on our Facebook and our Twitter feeds, etc., etc., about 16th of December, Blood River, Foot Trackers, Zulu Army, da-da. And the amount of denials that came back on Twitter was amazing. It's lies, it's propaganda, it never happened. How can... 150 Boers beat an army of 5,000 Zulus, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and you go, hang on, boys. This yeah. is obviously some <laughs> kind of sore point or some kind of yeah. spot in history that really <laughs> grabs the imagination. Yes. So on the one side, you've got that denial. On the other side of Blood River, you have that that battle was the confirmation of the Fortrackers' right to exist. Yeah. As blessed by God. They made the promise and they made the covenant. I think nine times before the battle, they stood there at night and made this vow to God that they would hold the day forever holy should they get victory on, at, at that battle. Yes. So you've got these two hugely opposing views on that one where people deny that it actually ever happened. On the other side, a lot of people use it as the confirmation of their right to existence. Yeah, yeah. In South Africa. And again, the visit to Blood River. And you've got to visit both sides. You've got to visit the Fortre Galaga, that little museum. And you've got to visit the, the, Zulu, the Zulu Museum to kind of put this thing into mm. context. Yeah. And even today, they changed the name. I think it started as Dingan's Day or something. Then it became Blood River Day. <coughs> then it became something else. And eventually, the name changed to Day yeah. of Reconciliation. Yeah. I remember it as a kid. I think it had been called Dingan's Day because that's the day the foot trackers beat Dingan. Yes, yes. So it's one <laughs> of those funny ones that still creates all sorts of emotions, but yeah. yet such an iconic and such a pivotal day in our history because that, that battle forged the entire <laughs> history of the, of the foot trackers and of the Zulu nation. Yes. All sorts of nonsense happened in KZN, and you can track it right back to the Battle of Blood River. Yes. Then the, other, the next one I'm going to go is the Isantlwana Zulu Bravery Monument. Ah, okay. I think you did mention that I've, before. I've spoken about this one before. And to me, this again personifies so many different aspects of our mentalities, our preconceived ideas, our history, our hates, prejudices, loves. We're talking about 1879, February 1879, the British invade Zululand. It was a cooked-up invasion. It was based on false information passed on to Great Britain and it was basically yeah. the little colonial dream of one or two characters down in the colony of, of, of um, Durban or Port Natal. And they thought it would be a walkover. Oh, look, we're just going to invade three huge columns. We'll just, it'll be over by Christmas. Yeah. And by the time the news gets to London, it will be a fait accompli and it's going to be done. Yeah. At it shows that British attitude, that absolute superiority attitude. Yes. The British war machine kicks in, regulars along with irregulars and colonials and conscripts and all sorts of stuff comes out of, out of Durban, out of, out of the colony of Natal, and invades Zululand. And the Zulus, we're now 1879, it's King Tetsuayu, very, very proud man. And 
he refused to bow to the British. The British had made all sorts of weird demands of him. He had, he had to dis dismantle his army. He had to allow British people to come in and, and help govern and all sorts of weird stuff. He said, guys, oh, yeah. it's not happening. This is my country. Yes. And the, Brit the Brits invade and Chelmsford, with his column, gets annihilated. 2,300 and something or 2,200 and something colonial troops are killed by the Zulus in sure. this iconic battle. Yeah. Now, the stories that come out of this is there were a thousand excuses as to why this happened. Because in the mentality, how can this army of spear-wielding savages kill and wipe out this modern British army yes it's yes. not possible you know it's that cognitive dissonance where you're seeing on the field is not what you are registering <laughs> yeah and a hundred thousand <clears throat> excuses came out and it's only relatively recently <clears throat> where there's an incredible amount of, of interest in the anglo-zulu war where the real stories start coming out on this battle and the british obviously tried to suppress it because the British public must not hear about major military defeats in yes. their colonial adventures. <laughs> yeah. This is just not on because <laughs> you've now got 2,000 grieving families. And the day after Isantwan, or two days after Isantwan, you've got Rock's Drift, the famous defense of Rock's Drift, where this tiny little garrison beats off the Zulu army. Suddenly there's this whole whack of Victoria Crosses that get awarded at Rock's Drift. And the Battle of Isantwana now quietly sort of disappears and gets, gets squashed a little bit. Yeah. And to me, it just shows that, that colonial and British arrogance, that they were out-generaled, they were out-fought, they were out-strategized. Yeah. The Zulus had these guys for breakfast. <laughs> and the Zulus managed to make Chelmsford split his force. You never do that. You're in enemy oh, territory. Yes, you yeah. don't split your force. Chelmsford, as arrogant as he was, <clears throat> disobeyed his own orders to entrench his encampment. Hmm. He didn't entrench his encampment. You're on, you're on enemy territory. You know, so it's this whole gaggle of mistakes and stuff that comes out after some good research. Yeah. And at one point... There was a tipping point in the battle, and it could still have gone the way of the British. You're talking British redcoats, rifles, rifle fire. It's a .50 cartridge. I mean, that thing is a, it, it's a, mini, it's a mini cannon that will go through two, three people if shot correctly. So the British actually managed to halt the Zulu advance at one stage. They actually stopped the charge with the, with the fire. Oh, yeah. And the Zulus were in a little ravine somewhere. And one leader stands up and says, men, are you sons of Shaka or are you women? Are we going to do this, yes or no? And the Zulus rose up and charged into that fire again. And that tipped the battle. That one okay. iconic moment tipped that entire battle of Isantwara in the favor of the Zulus. Yes. But yet that went completely unrecognized for years. Yeah. And only recently... Did a monument go up on the battlefield at Isantwana? And the, bat, the, the, the monument is this little necklace. The Zulus would award a necklace of lion claw yeah. to recognize bravery in battle. Yes. And this monument now got, got put up on that battlefield in Isantwana. And I'm not sure it's, it's, it's changing the attitude that much or the knowledge of that battle. But to me, that's just one of those nice little tipping points where you go, yes, that, that is what is needed at Isantwana. Instead yeah. of the British lost, the Zulus won. Yeah. The narrative needs to change. Yes. <laughs> no, it does need to change. <laughs> and then one of my all-time favorite monuments is the Tal Monument in Paul. The Tal Monument. The yeah. language monument yes. in Paul. It is just such a unique and such a different concept to have this entire monument built to a language we've gone on about the language i think we've hit 13 language monuments in in, in south africa i think we hit 13 yes. dotted yes. around the country the only country in the world with, with, with monuments to, to their to their own language yeah but just the beauty of that monument and the symbolism of that monument 
And again, it just goes again. One of the things I firmly believe in is that language and the way you express yourself also shows your mentality and your identity. Yes. Language is an identity. And the fact that there's a language monument in Paul just speaks volumes as to the identity of the Afrikaner. How he's created an entire nation and identity out of this mingle mousse of nationalities that came together in the 16 and 1700s. And then suddenly, late 1800s, here comes this whole language. And that language is that binder, that bond of all these people into one identity. And that, for me, is encapsulated on that mountain in Paul. And again, if you want to understand South Africa and you want to understand the history and the politics of the dynamics of South Africa, you have to understand that that language, the Afrikaans language, is a pivotal point in that identity or one of the identities in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. I think let's go listen to a piece of music and we'll be right back. The Road Trip Show here with Diedrich. Okay, where to next? We left off with the Tar Monument. Now, there's, again, there's a big difference between a monument and a a museum. Yeah. And South Africa, again, has got a huge, huge variety of really, really world-class museums as well. And I've chosen these ones because if you go through them... It actually shows you the entire history stroke political makeup of of South Africa. And a lot of it is obviously skewed towards the Western history of South Africa because that was written and recorded, etc., etc. And pre-European arrival in South Africa, very yes. little was actually recorded and very little is, or not enough, is known about that period. Yeah. But there's two spots, well, two stroke, three spots, that actually do give some insight into that. One is the Natural History Museum in Cape Town, just at the top end of the gardens in Cape Town. And that's got one of the better displays of sand rock art and of some of the ethnography of Southern Africa. Yeah. And that, again, is constantly evolving and changing. And South Africa's got a huge, huge treasure trove of rock art all over the place. And my personal opinion is not enough is done to preserve it. Thousands of rock art sites around the place, and they're just not being looked after and not being protected and preserved enough. And I think there's a lot that we haven't found yet. And there's a gazillion sites that we haven't found. And there's new discoveries happening happening all the time. So as, as a kickoff, Cape Town, the Natural, Natural History Museum in Cape Town, does have that. And then, of course, we've got to go into the cradle of humankind. Oh, yes, yeah. And, again, essential visit at some point. You've got to go through the Sturkfontein Caves. Yes, I've been there when I was still a youngster. Yeah, you've got to go through the Sturkfontein Caves <coughs> at some stage. It is a world-famous archaeological site. You can see the diggings. You can see the discoveries as they're being made. Yeah. And it's a constant ding-dong battle if you follow some of the the archaeological sites and stuff and some of the papers that get put out. It's a constant ding-dong between South Africa and East Africa claiming to have the earliest hominid skeletons and fossils and things coming out. It's a fascinating discussion to watch yeah it's not yeah. so much a, a sort of a competition but it's a hey oh look you know we found this oh my okay the whole history and the whole theory of evolution goes on its head again until they try and figure out now where this all fits together and then two three years later something else gets discovered ah now yeah. it turns over so the Sturkfontein <laughs> caves is a, it's a lovely tour i mean you go underground you can see some of the diggings you can actually see where some of the fossils have been found They've got a fantastic little museum at the Stackfontein Caves as well, 
But you have to combine that with a visit to Maraping. Maraping just right. down the road, and that's the interpretive center. Okay. And it's a nice day out, and it's, it's a really good interactive museum type of place. And it's got all sorts of stuff that you can have a look at and see and touch and feel. So yeah. there's a lot more interpretive stuff that happens out of, out of Maraping. Yes. Then there's this massive gap until the 1400s, which is the exploration and the Portuguese, etc., etc. Then you've got to go and visit the Diaz Museum in Mossel Bay. Oh, yes, yes. To understand and almost incomprehensible that people sailed around the world in ships that fit into an Olympic swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> Tiny little caravels, 1400, and these guys are sailing into what they believe is dragons and off the end of the world. Yes. And there they, they eventually get around the coast of Africa and open the route to the east. And again, that discovery started the whole Western story of South Africa. Yes. So the Diaz Museum, if you understand South African history, you've got to kick that off over there. That, of course, then leads to the Dutch trade around the Cape, which then leads to the Dutch settlement of the Cape. Dutch settlement is probably the wrong way to term it, the VOC or the Dutch East India Company settlement of the Cape. It wasn't a government thing. It wasn't a colony. It was private enterprise. Yes. And there you then have to look at the Castle of Good Hope. Fantastic museums in the Castle of Good Hope. It's the oldest building in South Africa that's still in daily use. That's the old fortress that protected the harbor. And you've got to understand that this is private money. This is private enterprise that funds and builds this entire operation in Cape Town. And tied in with that, you then have to go look at Groot Constantia. Because that gives you, again, an idea of the level of civilization and of money and of power that this Dutch East India Company had. they They ran South Africa as a business. Yeah. Or the Cape Colony at that stage as, yes. a, as a business. It was private enterprise before any thoughts of colonialism and stuff came in. This was yeah. private enterprise. And that period of from 1652 right till the end of the 1700s when eventually go bankrupt, you can see there at Groot Constantia. And between Groot Constantia and the, and the castle, castle of Good Hope gives you that period of history. Look, there's a hundred other little museums if yeah. you want to expand on that. <coughs> then, of course, what happens is you've then got the British occupation of the Cape, which then leads to that mass migration of the Fort Trekkers out of the Cape area into what used to be the Transvaal Free State, etc. Yes, yes. There's very little <coughs> museum-wise or history-wise for that period of the British occupation of the Cape. It's, do- it's dotted around in one or two smaller places around in Port Elizabeth and in Grahamstown and stuff. But again, that leads us to the Fort Trekker Museum in the Fort Trekker Monument in Cape Town. Yes. In, in Pretoria, sorry, in Pretoria. Pretoria, yeah. And the Fort Trekker Museum, again, they've got the old ox wagons there. They've got the cannon that was used at Blood River. Griki, Griki the cannon oh, yes, is Kriki. in the Fortrecker monument. Yeah. So there's this big hall and it shows migrations around the world and how this was nothing unusual. I mean the Fortrekkers is exactly on a par with the with the occupation of the West in in the USA. Yes. Same thing. Ox wagons, people pioneers looking for land, etc. etc. Clashes with indigenous tribes. It's a it's a mirror image yeah. of that Same period story. in history. Yeah. And it's considered, the foot trackers is considered one of the biggest mass migrations ever in, in, in history with that kind of impact on a country. Okay. But you then again have to go to the Heritage Center at the Foot Tracker Monument because that explains the rise of Afrikaner nationalism and where it comes from. And that again is post-Anglo-Boer War. Yes. Now, we have to again look at that period. You've got the Fort Trekkers, you've got the establishment of the republics. You've then got an 
almighty big influence of Great Britain, driven by Cecil Rhodes and by Jamison and by Alfred Bate and by, you know, these, these imperialists. Yes, yes. And we're now looking at gold, diamonds. The big boys. <laughs> and that diamonds, the history of diamonds and the driving force behind a lot of that British imperialism is at the Big Hole Museum in Kimberley. Yeah, yes, that's right. If you go to the Big Hole Museum in Kimberley and you watch the interactive displays, it's beautifully done. And that again shows you the driving forces behind this British imperialism that eventually caused that conflict with these poor republics. Yeah. Late 1800s, diamonds are discovered, power plays, stock exchanges, huge money's coming in, gold then eventually gets, gets discovered in the Boer Republics. Yeah. Bang. Re- recipe for conflict. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the Big Hole Museum in Kimberley, again, is one of the spots you've got to look at to understand the impact of big business, of big industry on these two little Boer Republics. Yeah. That again then takes you takes us to the Boer War Museum in Kimberley. The Boer War Museum and Frohe Monument are on the same terrain, same spot. But the Boer War Museum is all about that conflict of 1899 to 1902. Yes. And I've been to, for example, I've been to the Imperial War Museum in the UK and those kind of museums. Not in size, but in quality of display. Yeah. The Boer War Museum in Bloemfontein is on a par with anything I've seen anywhere in the world. Okay. Purely about the Anglo-Boer War. You can happily spend an entire day in that museum walking around those displays and getting an understanding of the, the causes of the war, the yeah. actual progression of the war, the different phases of the war, and the eventual outcome yes. of the war, and especially the deep psychological... Impact. Scars that it left with yeah. the people, with the fighters that were sent to the in banishment to places like Sri Lanka, Ceylon, St. Helena, South America, the Bahamas, this prisoner of war that were taken away from South Africa. Yeah. And that is beautifully illustrated in the Boer War Museum. One of the smaller museums that shows a, an awful lot of good info about the actual fight. Of the, of the Anglo-Boer War, and the first phase of the war was typified by the, the siege, the sieges of Ladysmith, oh, yes, of, yes. of Mafeking, etc. And Ladysmith has got a fantastic siege museum. Yeah. In one of the buildings, you can walk into it, some of the old cannons are outside, you're surrounded by the actual events, by the hills, you can still see some of the... Scars in the pavements or where people were killed in Kimberley. There's still a, a cannon in the one or a, or a cannon shell in one of the bell towers, one of the churches. So Ladysmith oh, yeah. has sort of really embraced the history of that of that siege. <laughs> but the Ladysmith Siege Museum is again an essential part of trying to understand the war because the war went from the siege mentality. The siege mentality went to the guerrilla warfare mentality, yeah. and then the guerrilla warfare mentality eventually wound up in the concentration camps and the eventual defeat of the Afrikaners. Yes. So, the siege museum again is a hugely, hugely worthwhile visit on any of those lists. Yeah. And then one of my absolute favourites is the Ditsong Museum of Military History in Johannesburg. Okay. And it's commonly called the War Museum. It's actually the Museum of Military History, but people tend, tend to call it the War Museum, yeah. right next to the, the zoo in, in Saxonwald in Johannesburg. Yes. And again, it is world-class. The displays there are on, on, are on a level with the Imperial War Museum. Again, not in size and not in scale and scope of yes. what is displayed. But quality of display there is incredible. The outside collection of aeroplanes, tanks, right from World War II through to... I mean, South Africans have fought all over the place. They yes. South Africans love a fight. For whatever <laughs> reasons, the South Africans love a good fight some way. Yeah. And wherever South Africans have been involved in a conflict, they always come out with with glowing 
glowing recommendations. You know, the, yes. the, the the imperial forces or the coalition forces love having South Africans as part of as part of their makeup. Yeah. And South Africans, World War One, World War Two, Korea. We had we even had volunteers in Vietnam. We obviously a big part of the display is the the what we call the border war. The conflict in Namibia, stroke Angola. Yes, a lot yes. of the stuff is 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 displayed there. But for a variety of war machinery, of weapons, the weapon collection there is mind blowing. Yeah, and there's biplanes, and there's there's World War Two planes, and there's tanks, and there's guns, and there's cannons, and there's artillery pieces, and there's a whole gaggle of little halls and. And spots to go through, and that has again has got to be one of the top displays that we've actually got in South Africa, the Ditsong yeah. yes. Museum of Military History. <laughs> that is my warning. Is that your warning? Are we are we time out? Yeah, we've got two minutes left. Yeah. <laughs> oh, lovely. <laughs> no, but I thought I thought to you know to run to run through these lists. I mean, I can carry on about a lot of them for 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 a lot lot longer. I mean, you get me yeah. really involved in the Fort Tricky Monument. I'll spend half an hour chatting just about the symbolism of those of those of those of those spots. Yeah, but I think then maybe next week I've got another one or two categories that we can run through of slightly more slightly different kind of spots, which are kind of cool. Yes. Yeah, that sounds like an idea. But then then uh, maybe in the new year we get stuck into traveling under the rest of the N2. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the rest of the N2. <laughs> Mustn't forget about the N2. Okay, well, thanks again for all your information and the, all the knowledge you have about these things. It's always now, yeah. interesting to listen to. Now we just got to get the Americans, the Brits and the Germans back to South Africa so we can actually tell them about it. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, boys. <laughs> Join us <laughs> for a braai. Come on, braai. Join us for a braai. Come on, braai. And braai, no. No, no. No, no, braai. No, no, braai. Awesome, Diederik. Like, uh, anyway, to our listeners, Merry Merry Christmas over the next couple of days, guys. Have a good one, a peaceful one. Stay safe, and we catch up with you next week sometime. Yes. Awesome. When those blue or snowflakes are falling, that's when those.